be interested in new ideas when those ideas are expressed in the outline world dispatch it's tuesday may 9th 2017 i'm andy martino on today's dispatch william turton on hacking in the french election the emmanuel macron campaign was able to foil nation-state hackers rawia kamir on a tv chef's mean streak gordon ramsay will roast you and rollin bishop on google surveys Google surveys were supposed to replace paywalls and save journalism. What happened? Power. So we're here with William Turton. William is our brand new staff writer here at The Outline. It's his first day. Welcome, William. Hello. Thanks for having me. So you kicked off your, your career here by writing about France's presidential elections, which of course occurred over the weekend, and there was a hacking event that happened on Friday afternoon prior to the election. It was a breach of email systems of one of the candidates. Of course, we're familiar with that sort of thing here in the States. Uh, but, William, this one was different. What happened? How did it go down? Right. So on Friday, nine gigabytes of emails and documents from the campaign of Emmanuel Macron, who eventually went on to win the election, uh, were dumped online. They were dumped on Pastebin and then eventually spread around on 4chan. And, you know, a lot of these documents and emails were really innocuous. But, you know, luckily for the Macron campaign, there's a national media and campaigning blackout one day before the election takes place. So uh, one hour before that blackout was set to go in place, these documents were released. So, you know, the campaigns were forbidden about talking about them. And the media was actually warned of potential legal repercussions by the council that kind of governs French elections. Um, And so what's really interesting about this hack is that it seems the Macron campaign was aggressively defending against these attacks by by trying to kind of fool the hackers in that whenever they would receive a phishing email or, or the ones that they could identify as phishing emails, they would flood that email with a bunch of fake login credentials so that a hacker would be inundated with you know, usernames and passwords that don't really relate to anything. And it seems like a digital member of of Macron's campaign was hinting that, you know, some of these username and passwords that they flooded with might have worked, but they might have gone to email inboxes that were kind of doctored or Mm -hmm. manufactured uh, to appear real but had any, you know, really interesting info taken out of them so that, you know, a hacker gets into this inbox, they think they've made it, they just dump all the emails, not knowing that, you know, the email they just got into was a honeypot set up. So that sound you just heard, obviously, with Hillary, was Hillary Clinton beating her head against the wall. <laughs> now, this played out differently. It didn't hurt him at all. And partly that sounds like because there was not anything embarrassing in, in this hack, in these emails. But what, what seems like, the, and the part I think that it's more interesting as a bigger picture possible change is that this is the first time that a campaign was able to actually get out ahead of this and outsmart the hack. Is that, is that correct? Right. It seems like they outsmarted the hackers, and you're right. There wasn't really anything interesting in this dump, and we can't say how much of that was the fact that there just wasn't anything interesting in the emails or you know, some kind of master plan uh, orchestrated by the campaign. But the, the real difference here seems to be that they were prepared. They knew this was coming, and they wanted to aggressively defend themselves. Uh, So they kind of put in these mechanisms to, you know, assume that a hack would happen and and try and prevent against it. So as campaigns or organizations, I mean, this could apply to the next Sony hack, too, really, as we've seen 
all kinds of organizations vulnerable to hacks over the last several years, and it just becomes chaos. Are we now entering a phase where there have been some tools developed and some experts who can fight back, and we're seeing a new, a new wave of the hackers potentially not being as effective? Or would this all be a moot point if there were, like, naked pictures in Macron's mail or something? Is that really what's saying? Right. There, and the thing about phishing is that you can have some of the smartest, you know, cybersecurity defense people on your team, but if one person accidentally clicks that link and gives up their username and password, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, you can try as much as you can, and it seems like they did a pretty good job here, but, you know, in some cases it's just totally indefensible. Last thing I want to ask you something that seems very specific but so obvious that I can't believe that the Clinton campaign or no one else thought of this. Correct me if I'm wrong, William, but the Macron campaign said some of the hacked emails were genuine and some of them were just fake. Some of them were made up. That seems like a brilliant answer, even if it's a lie. What if John Podesta had said some of these are my emails and some of them are not? That what a great strategy for defending against is by sowing doubt in the minds of the people who might see them, right? Right. And and another theory that they didn't really hint at this, but seems technically plausible, is that, you know, in these fake honeypot inboxes that they set up, they also inserted fake emails into them so that they could kind of sow this distrust mm. of the leak in general. So uh, yeah, whether that's true or not, it's a, it's a great PR strategy. What, once you don't know what's valid, that kind of invalidates the whole thing. Absolutely. All right, William, thank you for joining us. Fascinating story, and welcome to The Outline. Thanks for having me. Culture. Gordon Ramsay's holding up a slice of white bread to either side of a woman's head. Both of them are dressed in chef's whites. What are you? An idiot sandwich. Idiot sandwich what? An idiot sandwich, Chef Ramsay. I first saw that exchange floating around online in the form of a captioned GIF. It wasn't until months later that I realized the clip was actually taken from Hell's Cafeteria, a parody sketch that aired on James Corden's Late Late Show. Hell's Cafeteria. But Gordon Ramsay has regularly gone to such extreme lengths to humiliate contestants on shows like Hell's Kitchen that even this seemed realistic to me. Where's the lamb sauce? Come on, man. I just need a... This the lamb Where's sauce? the lamb sauce? More recently, on Twitter, Gordon Ramsay's been dragging users' struggle plates. In response to a photo of one user's chicken, he said, quote, You're supposed to roast the chicken, not take it to the crematorium. To another who'd sent in a picture of a poached egg in a bowl of noodle soup, he said, quote, looks like toxic scum on a stagnant pool. To yet another who'd asked for feedback on some empanadas, all he could muster up was sad. It's hard to tell how many people, if any, are participating earnestly. What is clear is that people enjoy being roasted by Ramsey and watching strangers get roasted by him too. Some of the qualities Ramsey demonstrates are ones that we're taught to seek in ourselves, for better or worse. Perfectionism and hard work as a panacea. Ramsey's biography is aspirational. He was a soccer star derailed by an injury who had to fight his way from a council estate to culinary school. He battled his way through multiple renowned kitchens to earn and maintain several Michelin stars. Ramsey, an outsider from the Midlands, got a job as a line chef and somehow turned that into an empire. In the years since then, he's become synonymous with one-liners that are borderline verbally abusive. Bobby, yes. I'm looking for someone to take control of this disgusting, embarrassing mess. He doesn't give a fuck. He's dreaming. He's standing there pissed his pants looking for his tartar caviar white chocolate crap. And he's just running around like a toilet brush. Is anyone going to take control? 
Many of these clips come from Hell's Kitchen, on which a dozen amateur cooks and professionals must compete for a job running a big-name kitchen. The show's been criticized for Ramsey's persona and for what has been alleged as an inaccurate portrayal of professional kitchens and restaurant hierarchies. But outside of Hell's Kitchen, Ramsey deploys multiple personalities. On Kitchen Nightmares, the now-defunct show where he intervened to help struggling restaurants, he plays a role that one desperate restaurateur described as White Oprah. You showed me tonight that each and every one of you has got the capabilities to turn this around. But you, madam, you're going to explode. I believe in you. Now believe in yourself. On MasterChef, he's gentle and patient with contestants. It makes me feel homesick. Oh, does it? Yes, it does. And on Late Night TV, he's a charming culmination of all of the above. Witty, lovable, able to laugh at himself. Jimmy, you've got to put a little bit of effort into it. Food I'm sorry, I'm effort. putting effort into it. Stop being lazy, let's go. <laughs> right. It must be fun to be married to you. <laughs> Yet it's still Ramsey's dickishness that seems to attract people the most. In an era where brash talk is all around us and becoming increasingly normalized as a style of communication, Ramsey perhaps feels like a welcome contrast. His roasts are self-aware, entertaining, and ultimately harmless. It's just food, after all. And Ramsey knows it, too. Perhaps because he learned, rather than inherited, his affinity for fine dining, he doesn't seem to have the precious, pretentious approach to food so many others working at his level do. And he acknowledges that regular people eat regular things. He may be a dick, but he's a benevolent dick. For now. future. Using Google surveys is fairly painless. I made a survey for $10, targeted 100 people in the United States who spoke English, and asked them the question, how much does this survey frustrate you? Then I clicked publish, and Google placed my survey across sites in the Google surveys network. I have no idea where it appeared or who saw it, but 34% of respondents answered with, kind of annoying. 23.1% clicked, not at all, bring it on and 8% responded with, eh. Google Surveys is a platform used by marketers and researchers to quickly get answers from people around the web. It's also used by website owners who want to make some extra cash via a supplemental form of advertising. At one time, Google Surveys was heralded as a replacement for paywalls. This was back when it was called Google Consumer Surveys. People around the web can answer your questions in order to access premium content, like news articles or videos. Content publishers get paid as their users respond to these questions. Instead of being forced to pay to see something, users could just answer a few quick questions, or not, as you can sometimes just opt out. It looked like a win-win for a while. Unfortunately, this value exchange is seemingly not as valuable as it once was. That's in part because the appeal of depending on Google for revenue is less and less appealing. Google surveys came along at a time when more and more publishers were starting to think about paywalls. And, you know, over the last few years, we've obviously seen that I think it's almost the majority of news organizations, or at least newspapers in the U.S. now, use some sort of paywall. That's Justin Ellis, a former staff writer for Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard. But back at the time, people were still trying to figure out what would be the right method. 
Some publishers have since decided it's better to cut out the middlemen altogether and focus on a proprietary paywall like the ones used by the Wall Street Journal and New York Times to encourage paid subscriptions. Google Surveys has also turned out to be less lucrative than initially expected for some publishers. One publisher I spoke with claimed that revenue from surveys declined drastically in 2017. There are other companies that provide survey-based paywalls, such as Servata, and they're popping up more and more in mobile apps and games. What this means for consumers is that surveys as paywalls are likely to appear less and less when you want to read about the news, but more and more when you want to zen out on your phone. Meanwhile, publishers have mostly moved on to other forms of paywalls or interstitial notes begging users to turn off their ad blockers in similar schemes. In the quest to find the happy medium between forcing readers to pay and everything being free, surveys are just another bump in the road. That concludes the dispatch. I'm Andy Martino. Till tomorrow.